Welcome back to another episode of the Pigex Podcast. I'm your host, Delaney Howell. This month, we're focused on the topic of PERS management, or porcine reproductive and respiratory syndrome, that costs the swine industry millions of dollars each year. To help us discuss this topic and break it down is Dr. Daniel Linares, an associate professor and the director of graduate education for Iowa State University's College of Veterinary Medicine. And to help facilitate the discussion, we're joined again by Dr. Chris Rodemaker, a swine extension veterinarian and the associate director for the Iowa Pork Industry Center. Daniel has spent years researching PERS, and more specifically ways to manage PERS outbreaks. So today he's going to join us to discuss his PERS outbreak management program, also known as POMP. We kick off the discussion with Dr. Rodemaker sharing why this time of year is so important to focus on mindful practices for managing and preventing PERS. I would say traditionally, at least during my practice experience and I suspect, and, and I think the data proves that out, that we continue to see this time of year is where we typically begin to see, you know, PERS and some other diseases. We start to see more clinical cases, particularly as the weather starts to get a little bit cooler. Viruses, PERS and PED in particular, they survive longer outside uh, the host, so a little bit easier to transmit it. The Probably the other thing is, too, is uh, this is the time of year Farmers are getting in the fields, taking the crops off, and and this is the time of year we do most of our manure pumping exercises out of both our breeding herd and our growing herds as well. So that creates another potential uh, biosecurity hazard and another potential vector for moving pathogens around as well. But Daniel, maybe you can uh, tell us a little bit, you know, with your intimate work with the swine disease reporting system, what, what you guys see kind of year in, year out about this time of year and, and what we're kind of what we can expect for, for this upcoming year, you think? Yeah, definitely. Based on the swine disease reporting system, the SDRS, which is a consortium of six diagnostic labs sharing data on PERS and other pathogens activity over time, the fall is Certainly when PERS, and like you mentioned, some others too, like PED, and they spike in terms of activity at this point, time of the year. And looking at the, the data at this point here, early October, we already see activity of growth finish sites, right? The spiking positivity in terms of PCR. So definitely it's, they are already cooking, for lack of a better term, PERS. We know that the growth finish pigs are amplifiers because of the epidemiological connections between growth finishing sites and south farms. Whenever we see an activity in growth finishing sites in subsequent uh, weeks, we see the virus activity in south farms and causing outbreaks and, and things like that. Yep, that, that seems to be pretty consistent, I think, with, with what we see, you know, clinically, certainly year over year from all indications. Um, any reason to, to think or, or see, Daniel, over the last couple of years, do you think we see more cases in the fall compared to other times of the year? Or we'll take PERS probably in this uh, matter. Or do you think we're starting to see more cases throughout the year independent of the seasons? Yeah, I think there is a trend of line going, going up year after year. People are are monitoring more and more. First virus, and I think the industry, uh, shake for sure, Swine Health Information Center, and and others have done a great job 
raising the awareness of the importance of biocontainment and growth finish on the whole ecology of furs in the in the industry. So make people be more aware that the growth finish sites are a source and amplifying source of, of virus. I think that may help to explain why we see more and more people submitting samples from those sites for for testing and monitoring for PERS activity? You know, that's a good question that Chris raised about PERS independent of really the season. And so as you think about managing for that, you know, I think typically producers are aware of it during those seasons when PERS is more prominent, but it sounds like it's kind of starting to become season agnostic. So what are some of those key things to watch for during all seasons now, it sounds like, uh, to make sure that you're being effective with your biosecurity and, and watching for any of those outbreaks? I think there are reasons to monitor for PERS activity throughout the year and regardless of the status. For example, if you're still negative, you want to make sure you're negative. You want to make sure that you early detect so you have an early intervention and prevent the cascade of affecting other sites. If you are positive, you are you wanting to track your control measures and track your recovery in terms of PCR results and, and CT values and, and everything. So you want to monitor that. And uh, of course, if you're in the face of the out, outbreak too, you also want to monitor to understand how, how widespread it is and what type of strains we're dealing with and perhaps what are the other co co-infections you are dealing with because we know that there are important synergisms between PERS and influenza and uh, mycoplasma, high pneumonia, and perhaps others, right, to, in terms of the clinical consequences of the infection. So, Daniel, I know you've been working on this program with your, your very large team of very excellent graduate students with the POMP program, the PERS Outbreak Management Program. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about what that is exactly and, and maybe how it got started? Yeah, so POMP stands for PERS Outbreak Managing Program. So it's a program where we capture data on South Farms facing a, uh, an outbreak and understand what are the strategies being implemented in terms of response to the outbreak and all the way to the recovery, right? Then we track the productivity and PCR results over time and try to put everything together, helping people understand best practices for PERS management based on their characteristics and response plan. It all, all started back in 2009-10 when I was uh, working on my graduate program with Bob Morrison, Monty back then. And then we just started with a simple question on a lot of people use use vaccine to as part of the response to PERS outbreaks. Some people use live virus inoculation or LVI. Which one is best? So back then we started this field study to compare LVI versus MLV and uh, the effect of that on the recovery metrics, right? And and now fast forward here to 2023, I have the pleasure of working with you, Chris, and, and that and Ana Paula, Tina, Gio, Giovanni, a, a big team here of collaborators putting together different uh, expertises to expand that beyond just MLV and LVI, right, and try to understand how, how do we deal with these contemporary viruses uh, circulating in the in the U.S. and how to best respond to those targeting for quicker, faster, less impactful recovery from outbreaks? That's really excellent. So 
So it's it's kind of like it's an epidemiological database, really, to kind of evaluate these different practices during a PERS outbreak. So you've had the opportunity to, you say you took some of those initial herds and you're continuing to sign herds on up yet today. So if you have uh, veterinarians and producers, you know, that would be interested in participating, what, what's kind of the process uh, for them to to go through to get enrolled? And then what what's some of the information that they get back out of that? I would say it's pretty easy. Just give give me a call or give you a call or send send us an email or go to our website fieldepi.org slash pomp p o n p. And long story short, what we want is just to characterize the herd, so we, we there will be a quick and easy data that we want to capture that could be. People could answer Qualtrics or Excel-based survey, or we could talk with them while they're driving to to collect that that data. Then, as the herd goes through the outbreak, we we cover the diagnostics, right? With a PCR weekly PCR testing, we we cover that, and we also cover the whole genome-based, the whole genome sequencing of the initial outbreak. So we create a baseline of what's the virus that that herd is is dealing with. If everything goes all right, we don't need any other whole genome sequencing, but if the herd is delaying to achieve stability or if there's an unexpected drop in your CT values, in other words, a lot of virus being detected, then we, we run another whole genome sequencing to better understand what's going on. Is it a different virus? Did, did the virus change, recombine what's going on? And the other, the other thing we capture from the participants is Selected numbers on productivity, so we help them measure and benchmark the production of the outbreak. That's exactly right. You know, so you have that survey information. So yeah, it's really, we're just trying to collect. We know everybody goes through PERS outbreaks, right? So people respond, you know, some people do the same thing. Some people do different things. So that survey is kind of designed to capture, you know, what are some of the things that people are doing? So like you say, we're trying to characterize the herd. What's the genetics? You know, what location, what, what type of virus is it? You know, I know we're, we're doing some with genotyping and now we're looking at lineages and starting to do some comparisons mm-hmm. there. And there's a third block of that survey talks about immunological solutions. So right back to your foundational work, Daniel, that you did as a graduate student, you know, comparing LVI to MLV. Well, now, you know, through the POMP survey, we can collect, we because we know we have multiple MLVs out there and, and people are using LVIs or some combination of those two. So, you know, we have the ability through that survey to capture some of that information as well as, you know, what are you doing for replacement guilts? Are you closing the herd? You know, where are you sourcing those animals from? What do they get from an immunological solution standpoint? And then you've kind of got all these biomanagement strategies, like what are you doing on the farm in terms of feedback or nurse sows? Or, you know, are you running a weekly system or a batch system? Are you doing all in, all out in your farrowing? How are you handling sanitation, processing, and personnel flow? So really the idea with that is is to really try to get as many herds enrolled as we can so that we can put that plus, like you mentioned, the production information, you know, we're going to measure, so you know, time to stability. So how long does it take before the farms produce a negative pigs? We also monitor time to baseline production. So how long before the farms back to producing, you know, budgeted number of wean pigs that they were producing prior to the outbreak? 
total losses as well, right? So we can take all that survey information and put it into statistical models and say, okay, well, this lineage seems to be associated with, you know, higher or lower mortality or this combination of MLV or LVI or this MLV is better than this MLV. Those are some of the type of questions that we can answer. What do you think uh, from the whole genome sequencing standpoint? That's kind of a newer technology. And I, I know we've, we've been very generous. Uh, Beringer Ingelheim helps to fund to offset, you know, $700 uh, per farm to uh, offset some of those diagnostic costs that you mentioned before. You know, and, and like you say, a lot of people are utilizing that to do some whole genome sequencing, you know, to look at, you know, you know, various recombinations or, or, that test has the ability to detect multiple viruses in a sampling. What are some of the things that you and, and Giovanni are, are learning in terms of the utilization of whole genome sequencing and looking at and evaluating some of these PERS outbreaks? Yeah, I guess the keyword is is Giovanni, right? It's yeah. uh, Don, Don Giovanni. We've been working with him, and he, he has been our go-to person for whole genome whole genome sequencing for PERS analysis, right? You know what? He's had helped us and the and the pump kind of collaborators, the vets, the producers in the program understand is one really characterize the virus that's in the herd. So we call the baseline the baseline virus or viruses whole, whole genome sequence wise. And then going forward, we want to track the herd and understand any changes in that baseline. So that baseline characterizes, for example, how many viruses you have in the herd. Are there recombinations? between vaccines or wild wild type strains in any combination and did, did that changes does that change over time or or it does not change over time those things they are very well predictive of recovery right so for for example having multiple sequences or having multiple having recombination events having quickly evolving viruses those are all correlated with uh, a, a more kind of impactful production, impacting productivity in the herds going through the outbreak. So Giovanni has developed a system not only to put some metrics around whole genome, but also to quickly visualize in the quarter page format. So in a one snapshot, people could see and understand the differences, all those differences in the in the genome by using color code kind of boxes, right? Yeah, he's really unique in his ability to do that. You know, normally if you send in uh, a request for whole genome sequencing, you'll, the diagnostic lab will do that and you just get, uh, you know, a report back with a bunch of letters on it, just like an OR5 sequencing. So what, what makes Giovanni really unique is he takes several different software packages and takes all that data and, and does the interpretation for you. So that's that's really kind of a unique, that's actually a very unique skill set that he has, a nice service that he provides to customers and, and clients of the Iowa State Veterinary Diagnostic Lab for sure. And and yeah, I think that's right. I, you know, I, I know in the, one of the early papers he published with utilizing some of the pomp herds and, and looking at that, I I remember and it was with both recombination events or those herds that had three or more strains that were circulating. And, and that's really the advantage of the whole genome sequencing that can pick those up, whereas an OR5 sequence only will pick up the, the predominant strain. So if you have mm -hmm. several strains, it won't amplify and report those. It's only going to report one. 
you know, and I, he, I think he, if I remember the paper right, it was like, you know, farms that have three or more strains in it or have a recombination event, it was like, you know, just shy of 2,000 more piglet losses per 1,000 sows than farms that had one or two strains. So, you know, ones that had a very, really just one predominant strain. So, you know, that's a, a little bit like unlocking the key to this mystery that we've all kind of all wondered about is, you know, how many of these outbreaks, these ones that tend to last longer and don't clean up right away are actually due to, you know, several viruses co-circulating or like you mentioned, ones that are either rapidly changing or actually going through some recombination events on the farm. Yeah, and it has been, I don't want to say surprising, but it, it has been pretty common to see farms with multiple strains, dealing with multiple strains. So when people decide to do any feedback or live virus inoculation, highly encourage them to do a whole genome analysis to understand how many viruses are you putting back to your cells or guilds, right? Because that would be predictors of, of clinical impact. So very rarely you have one strain circulating in the herd. So this concept of a homologous or homogeneous is less and less true based on the whole genome data. Yeah, I think that's right. When you look at some of the preliminary analysis that the database has generated, is is there a few key nuggets uh, you think that we've kind of seen consistently that you can share with our listeners uh, from the database? Yeah, there's, like you said, some factors that consistently year after year and data set after data set, they are consistently beneficial, right, in terms of quicker recovery from the outbreak. Those are herd closure, the herds that have the ability and implement uh, some sort of herd closure, meaning guilt interrupting of guilt introduction until you have diagnostic evidence that the virus is not circulating anymore. Herd closure is beneficial. Herd immunity is another one. So uh, a naive herd takes longer to recover and has a much more production impact then I heard that broke when already had some immunity, that being from a, the previous break or from a vaccination. So with uh, any attenuated live vaccine, that will generate some, some herd immunity. The other consistent thing is biomanagement. Bio Whenever there is evidence that uh, the prevalence is, is lowering, people implementing MacRebo-like practices, anything you can do to to make it hard for a virus to jump from one crate to the next, from one room to the next, that will avoid that long stretch of period where you have intermittent results, few weeks positive, a few weeks negative, then positive, then back to negative. So when you're in that stage, if you can really declare war in terms of biocontainment, making again hard for the virus to jump over, peak to peak, crate to crate, room to room, and in other words, week after week, that's also correlated. MLV versus LVI. MLV continues to be associated with uh, much less clinical clinical impact and impacting numbers of pigs wind. But the LVI, the herds that do LVI, they tend to reach stability, meaning consistently winning negative pigs a little bit quicker. And those that relationship between LVI and MLV continues to be consistent across the databases. What else, Chris, have we seen? Yeah, I was thinking about the one you were talking about the biomanagement practices, you know, and, and I know we talked a little bit about biosecurity and how important that was. You know, one that I was thinking about that I thought was kind of interesting was comparing batch farrowing to oh, yeah. farrowing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you might want to just touch on that a little bit of what we what we're kind of seeing there so far. 
Yeah, and we kind of seen that for outside the pump project for her working with PED elimination tool is the farms that create those batches either three, four, four, five weeks. They, they essentially what they're doing is they're creating all in, all out in the fairing house, right? And that has been associated with a quicker recovery to make sense. We were again creating that all in, all out. So you were cutting the, the virus transmission there in the, in the fairing room. So batch fairing, even though we don't have a lot of farms in the database, it's a very significant, the, the effect of batch farrowing. Curious to see more, more farms with that to add consistency in this preliminary finding. Yeah. And I think there's probably, like you say, there's probably some lessons to be learned that could be applied to those weekly systems when they're going through herd closures and cleanup plans. And, you know, you see some people will implement things like that. They talk about creating a bubble or, or doing a, you know, either a wean down, uh, you know, some sort of partial depopulation where maybe they wean young and then they, you know, selectively abort a couple of weeks worth of production to kind of create that ability to truly do an all out and cleaning of the farrowing room, you know, before you, uh, you start hopefully putting in you know, clean and immunized and protected animals to that into that farrowing crate. So like you say, yeah, we don't have a lot of numbers of, of batch farrowing, but certainly the, the trend there for those farms stabilizing quicker is, is really pretty strong. So yeah, and and the other one is by the virus itself, right? When the lineage one C variant, for example, came and same thing with one seven four like viruses maybe five years ago now, that was 2000, more than five in 2014, 15. And those particular viruses, when they emerged and they, when they are new to the system, they're much more impactful in, in uh, causing more clinical problems and a delayed recovery. It's new to the system. It's made perhaps new to the immune system and new and, and more impactful. Watching what's in the region, knowing what's in your system and tracking your purse trees over time, that's always predictive of what you can expect in terms of the outbreak. Yeah, it sure feels like, you know, the virus is evolving faster than our ability to create either, you know, new immunological methods or new management strategies uh, to deal with them. Certainly, like you mentioned with the 174 and the variant 1C, I, I think from the lineage standpoint, it's a it's a good point. You know, we've used RFLP as kind of a, a kind of a quick and dirty way to name viruses. But, you know, I think what we're learning with the lineages is, you know, there for some of those RFLPs that have multiple lineages in them, uh, uh, you know, the 144 being an, an example of that, certainly looking at the lineages, even within the POM database is much more predictive. Like you say, the, the variant 1C, you know, we can see that, you know, the impact there when we look at a metric such as total losses in the database you know, the, the median for that is like seven, 8,000 pigs per thousand sows for the variant 1Cs. But if we look at other 144s in other lineages, such as L1C or L1A or, or some of the other lineages, the impact is much, much less. It's more like one to 2,000 pigs lost per thousand sows. So really, I think just goes to show that, you know, the lineage thing is probably something we need to get into our, our nomenclature and our vernacular and, and start to look at that uh, much more closely than just relying on the RFLP as, uh, oh, I have a 144. Well, 
I think, you know, what we've mined out of the database so far and kind of goes back to uh, some work that uh, Dr. J.Q. Zhang has done here at Iowa State. And, you know, we saw, he saw that clinically and uh, virologically is not all 144s are created the same, but we certainly okay. saw differences when we look compared them on a lineage basis. Yeah, each one has advantages, disadvantages. F- RFLP, they are really good to do what they're designed to do, which is differentiate the 252, which was the Injovec MLV, still, still is, to the other ones. So it's pretty good yep. at that. And it, it consistently provides a, a type, uh, 144, 174, so on and so forth. And the lineage is, is more kind of like you said, it's more group. The virus is more based on how they kind of stack together in the dendrogram, but at least look, looking at as of now in the SDRS database, we provide the lineage counts for all the sequences in the database. And at this time, for example, 2023, there are still some 10% of samples. So 529 cases that are just not typable. It's, it's unknown. It's the, the lineage system doesn't work for some sequences. So it's, it's good to kind of use both combined. Right. Yeah. For example, our 144 of lineage 1C variant, 174 of lineage X. So that yeah. way the vets, they still need, we can criticize our FLP, for example, or lineage, but what can we do different? We got to keep yeah. using what <laughs> plate number, right? That Paul Yeski likes to talk about. You see the Mac coming at you and now you give me the license plate so I know what to expect. And we still need uh, a simple way to give the PERS viruses a name. They're going to still keep working on fine-tuning the naming between now and then, we yeah. have to use what we have. Yep, that's right. And I think that's what some of the, the virologists are starting to look at is like, just like what you mentioned, is a combination of the two. You know, it's almost kind of like genus and species, right? You know, genus, it's kind of good for grouping them into big groups. But if you want to look at very, you know, very fine point differences, that's, you know, that's a little bit more like this. The species in that that's you know maybe where the lineage comes into a little bit more might be a little bit more important so so maybe in closing daniel you know just talk a little bit more again about pomp i know you're still recruiting farms maybe you can just tell the listeners again the best way if you have a farm that's going through an outbreak kind of what's the steps to you know get people signed up and and the, that whole process again yeah just get in touch with any of us from the team here be me you Gustavo, Giovanni, Ana Paula, Tina, any, any, any of us, if you talk with anybody from the field app, they will <laughs> redirect to, to us, right? And, uh, just like to, what are the benefits for participants, right? The short term benefits are we're gonna, at least if you take nothing from the program, <laughs> you get the diagnostics covered. So you track your herd, uh, over time until reaching stability. You get that whole genome sequencing, not only the sequence, and the 15,000 base pairs, like you said, but also the interpretation from Giovanni. So you right, right. get that. And then you get the benchmarking. How are, how is your herd covering compared to other herds being infected either in the same region or with the same or similar virus? So you get that benchmarking to understand the herd recovery potential and what, what where it is at compared to other herds. And then in the long term, you help us, like you said, it's a big epidemiological study, large that it's designed to go over space and time. And so in the, in the long run, people that are enrolling today, they're helping us to better understand first epidemiology and how can we better influence control and elimination 
of the virus from the breeding sites. As Daniel mentioned, for more information regarding PERS management systems, you can visit www.fieldepi.org backslash P-O-M-P. That wraps up this month's episode of the PigX Podcast, but if you enjoyed it, don't worry. There'll be another one next month. In the meantime, rate and review us, then check out some prior shows from the first three seasons. Next month, we're chatting waterline biology. It's an exciting one, so be sure to hit subscribe so you get notified when next month's episode drops. Until next time, I'm Delaney Howell, and this has been the PigX Podcast. PigX is a national podcast hosted by the Pig Livability Project partners at Iowa State University, Kansas State University, and Purdue, and supported by the Iowa Pork Industry Center. For more information on the project, head to www.piglivability.org or to inquire directly with questions regarding the project, email ipic at iastate.edu. Big X, ideas in the swine industry worth sharing.